0: On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Jessie Daniels. Jessie's the author of White Lies, and her newest book, Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Can Help Dismantle It, has just been released. And we'll be spending actually most of our time talking about that book. She's a faculty affiliate at the Harvard Berkman Klein Center for the Internet. She's also a research associate at the Oxford Internet Institute and Professor at Hunter College and the Graduate Center CUNY in Sociology, Critical Social Psychology, and Africana Studies. She's an internationally recognized expert on internet manifestations of racism, and her writing on race has appeared in the New York Times, NPR, Forbes, and Newsweek. And we are lucky to have Jesse with us on the Deep Dive. How are you?
1: Hey, I'm great. I'm so lucky to be here.
0: I love your, your Twitter feed. You're one of my favorite accounts. To follow. I, I always say that I learn so much from the things you post. I've probably screenshot and bought several books off of your, your threads and recommendations. So the pile of books that I have around the house is partially because of you. I remember when you announced that you were writing this book and it had to have been at least a year, maybe a little bit more, maybe 18 months or so. And in my head, I was like, I'm going to have you on the show when this book, when this book comes out. And, and here we are, Nice White Ladies has made it into the world. And I found that you did a really great job on multiple levels of taking a very important issue and making sense of it. Each of the chapters are unique, despite the fact that this is a phenomenon that overlaps. I feel like it's like the bulkheads on the Titanic, like they kind of spill over into each of them. So after that preamble, I want to give you an opportunity to set the stage as to why you thought like this was a project you wanted to take on and why the time was so right to discuss, confront and dismantle nice white ladies.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much, uh, Phil, for having me on. It's great to be in conversation with you again and more than uh, the characters allowed on the Twitter machine. Yeah. I mean, this book, I, I started, actually got the contract for this book in March of 2020, which, you know, listeners will recall there was some other stuff going on in March, 2020, but I had actually been thinking about the ideas in this book for a really long time. I mean, in some ways, It goes back to my dissertation, which became my first book, which you mentioned in White Lies. There was stuff in there about the way that white women were, you know, thought about in white supremacist ideology, and I I kept sort of thinking about that as I did the follow-up book to that, which was Cyber Racism, which looked at those groups online, and I spent some time in a place on Stormfront, which was the largest white supremacist portal at the time at a place called the Ladies Only Forum, which was, you know, for the white ladies of the white supremacist group. And then I started doing a call. I did a blog series called The Trouble with White Women and White Feminism for Racism Review, which is a blog I've had with Joe Fagan for a long time. And then from that, I got tapped by Chloe Engel to do a semi-regular opinion column for Huffington Post when they had their opinion section about kind of white women and their shenanigans for lack of a better word so I've been thinking about this for a long time but you know and I had actually planned to write a different book I was working on something else but so much had been happening with you know not only the Karen memes where people are you know recording white women calling nine one one on black people going about their daily lives but there was a way in which the whole country was sort of turning to this racial reckoning and sort of paying attention to to race in a in a renewed way that I, I thought was really spoke to a kind of urgency of the moment. So time passed. I mentioned the contract for this book came through in March of 2020. In May of 2020, you'll remember, you know, that was when George Floyd was murdered. We're all locked in our homes because of the pandemic. And so there's a way in which more and more people are are kind of witnessing, being forced to witness, you know, something that those of us who had been paying attention had seen a lot of times before. That was also the same day, May 25th, 2020 was also the very same day that something happened in Central Park, not too many blocks from where I live. A white woman had her dog off leash in and in the ramble of Central Park where you're not supposed to have your dog off leash. African-American man asked her to leash her dog. And instead of just saying, oh, Sure, I'll follow the rules like everyone else. What she chose to do was to call 911 and that man, Christian Cooper, video recorded her calling 911 and listening to her throw her voice up half an octave and, and do that performance of, I'm in trouble and there's an African American man who's threatening me, right? That was just, it was one of the most chilling things I have ever seen, you know, and to have that paired with the murder of George Floyd, you know, recorded on video by 17-year-old African-American girl, you know, I mean, I just, to me, it just spoke to the incredible urgency of the moment that we're in, because what Amy Cooper, the woman in Central Park, was doing was trying to bring Death by cop, which had happened to George Floyd, down on the head of this very gentle man who had simply asked her to follow the rules. And I thought, we are in trouble here and someone has got to speak up about this. So that that's really kind of the the moment that that the book emerged from. And it just seems like since that time, you know, we as white women haven't been doing much better at addressing our own stuff and kind of the mess that we've helped create in this country.
0: Absolutely. And you aptly describe him as as gentle, probably a little bit too gentle. You know, <laughs> to, a certain, to a certain extent, like I'm, I'm all for restorative justice, but he's kind of letting her off the hook a little bit too easy.
1: Yeah. I mean, I really <laughs> appreciate Christian Cooper's response to her. I mean, I, I don't know that it's that I want to make policy based on his response, but just like on a human level, like, first of all, that he's like, man, leave her alone. Like, it's kind of about a bigger issue. And then, you know, he went on and created a graphic novel out of that experience, you know, the fact that he took that, you know, horrible experience, created art out of it, and has kind of been, you know what, like, it's not about this one single woman, it's this bigger issue. I just have so much respect for him. You know, I just think, I think the world of him, honestly, I've never met the man. (laughs) Yeah. But I have no bad words for him.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely never, never met him. But (laughs) I often tell my my guests that, there are much better people than me (laughs) in many
1: respects
0: (laughs) because i i understand exactly what you're saying and i don't disagree and like i said i'm working on my whole restorative justice (laughs) bend but i also know that there is also a strain of blackness that loves to like forgive white transgression, like they love to do that, you know, so. No, I, t-
1: I totally hear what you're saying. I'm
0: always like, my antenna always goes up where I'm like, come on, man.
1: <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> and I, I totally don't, like, I don't think I have that kind of forgiveness in me, you know, I'm much, I'm much more petty than that. <laughs> so I just, I just admire him, you know, like, I want to be like that someday. <laughs> <I'm> like,
0: <laughs> I, absolutely. You know, one of, one of the things that, kind of captured me about the book and the sentiment and again so so much of this is so murky because so, some of these things are sort of they're all important but some are sublime I guess or very subtle and then others are like very obvious mm-hmm. right and clearly hurtful right so when you when you kind of go back to Stormfront, And you're talking about that. And there's a portal there. Clearly on a, on a white supremacist site, it's clear,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? And a lot of that ideology is around like replacement and fear and kind of tied to this notion of white women and the, the sanctity of whiteness through birth, mm-hmm. you know? But then there's the other subtler things that continue to happen that aren't as obvious as that. But when you talk about this sort of this notions of global motherhood, mm-hmm. like who gets to nurture and mother and and what does that mean? They're not connected completely, mm-hmm. but they swim in the same, yeah in the same water. So how did you carve through those sorts of distinctions?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, this is also kind of in the, in the stew of ideas that I've been thinking about for a long time, which is, you know, I I went to graduate school in the mid-1980s through the 1990s and the early 1990s. And when I was in graduate school, the people I was reading who were talking about white supremacy were Cornel West and Bell Hooks and, you know, historically Ida B. Wells Barnett. And when those folks talked about white supremacy, they were talking about this kind of system of ideas and a system of structures and you know, institutions that perpetuate this, you know, without the people and the funny outfits and the tattoos and the flags, you know, which is what most people kind of immediately go to when they talk about when they think about white supremacy. So so for me, thinking about white supremacy, you know, even though I started out talking about the Klan and those far right groups, I really see it as a system that we're all trapped in, in a particular kind of way. And so for me, thinking about white women, it's not about, you know, the women who've marched in the clan. I mean, that that's part of the problem, but it's about all the rest of us. You know, it's all the rest of us sort of pointing at that group and thinking that we're off the hook, you know? So around the issue of white women, it really comes through in these, like you say, these kind of less obvious and more subtle ways, like around motherhood. So again, in the 80s and 90s, one of the big pop culture moments, right, was the the emergence of Princess Diana sort of from this terrible marriage. And she starts going around the globe doing this kind of philanthropy work. And there are these pictures over and over again of her holding, you know, some child from an African nation who is, you know, sickly or poorly in some way. And the photographs of her, you know, it's sort of her lit in this angelic light and then sort of the darker light on this child that she's holding. And that imagery, right, of Diana and her light colored skin holding a darker skinned child evokes this kind of mother child imagery, but it also it like goes back to like religious traditions and that sort of thing. But it also does this other work, right? Which is the symbolic work of who is a good mother, right? And in princess Diana, we have this sort of, Oh, right, she's much better at mothering than these children's own mother, right, in their own home countries, right? And that gets translated globally, starting in the late 80s, early 90s, into this kind of global sense of white motherhood, right? So it's, it's white women who get tapped by UNESCO, right, this organization run by the UN, to sort of be a symbol of caring about children's issues around the world. So it ends up being people like Angelina Jolie, Meg Ryan, right? (laughs) who are these, you know, suddenly the spokespeople for motherhood and what's a good mother, sort of globally, you know, and that ends up translating into these really weird sort of personal stories where these Actual women adopt children from other countries, you know, sort of art imitating life, life, sort of, you know, like Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side, right? She plays this mother who is a better mother to Michael Orr, an African American, uh, young man, teenager who she takes in. But the reason that she's the better mother is because she's white and wealthy, right? It's not, it's not about the mothering that's going on. So it translates, right? So this idea of, of who white women are moves about globally and it translates into who we think is most suitable to be mothers. And this has really super important political implications, right? So, you know, we think about the stuff that's been going on in the Southern border when we have, you know, that from the last administration, we have this explicit policy of putting children who are moving from one country to another coming across the Southern border, end up in cages, literal cages and part of what's happened in the aftermath of that is adoption agencies run by white evangelicals, often run by women, come in and try and remove these children. You know, it's good to remove children from cages, but they're actually removing them from their families and putting them with white families, you know, who were seen a more, as more suitable, better parents. And that really is about the circulation of this idea of who white women are. It, you know, in the culture, in American culture, and globally, we're just seen as sort of better at mothering, and and I really argue that that's about whiteness.
0: In that answer, there's like a bunch of stuff that jumps out at me, and I'm I'm gonna take, I'm gonna try to take them one at a time.
1: Okay,
0: one is the persistence of of these stories and the way they work, and you mentioned Princess Diana, and it's interesting that 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 comes up because. I recently had a moment where I was like, God damn, I'm so tired of fucking seeing Princess Diana everywhere. Like, it's like we're in this weird moment of like, it goes in cycles where we're having like this new revitalization of her. And I, and I think it's a, is a combination of the crown is very popular. So, and now we're in the crown years where she's a principal, but you know, just watching CNN, there's like an ongoing CNN documentary there's a movie with Kristen Stewart that's coming out or a mini-series or something. And then I saw like something else, right? That like it's literally like there's four current projects going on centering like Princess Diana. And so when you mention her in this story, I'm like, these are these are images that are persistent and ideas that this person is long dead, like 20 years, and we're still living out this as some sort of like global importance. And when you mentioned the idea of like mothering, it takes me back to the earlier stages of this through antebellum slavery, where it was Black women and Black bodies that were mothering white children as a proxy for for white mothers who were absent, right? Or, yeah. Not as engaged, you know, wet nursing and all this kind of stuff comes up. So the persistence of, of these issues is again, part of that murkiness, you know, like tying these things together. And now we're seeing white mothers weaponized again, you know, me and you had a little exchange on Twitter about that, like through school boards and PTAs. And now it's all become about choice, right? Like, mass choice or school choice or critical race theory choice or whatever it is. So how do we start to chip away at something that has been part of these conversations for as as long as this country has been here?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I so appreciate you pulling out those threads. Somebody who was an early reader of the book said, you know, I noticed all this stuff when, I ha- when it happened, but I kind of didn't put it together. And I, I think of what I'm doing in this book as sort of connecting the dots, you know, and and connecting the dots in a specific way around white women. There's this weird thing that I've encountered in doing this, uh, specifically in doing this book, which is that white women, in some ways, we're we're kind of everywhere in the culture, and yet we're we're nowhere, you know? And so it's this weird paradox in a way, right? So if you think about, like, the Hollywood issue, right, A Vanity Fair, I think that's the magazine that does it every year, and it's sort of like, here are the hot... Stars in Hollywood, and it's like it's the sea of whiteness. You know, it's just like everyone. It's like, oh, you're the white woman. Oh, yeah, and and, La- and Yeah, you're <laughs> right. And angela Angelababy, and Halle Berry, and <laughs> You know, it's just like uh, and a dot and yeah. a
0: dot. Kerry Washington. There's like five.
1: Exactly. exactly, We can name them. You know, but the bigger thing is the whiteness, and it's so funny to me that that it becomes this flashpoint when you say. I'm going to talk about white women. You know, there was just a thing in David Brooks column from New York times where he's basically defending white women. It's like, as if all white women are the same. And that's absolutely not what I'm arguing here that all white women are the same, but there is a particular, you know, in academia, we would say a particular subject position that white women occupy that we have to understand. So, you know, to your question of how do we begin to chip away at this? I really think we have to begin to name whiteness When we're talking about white women. So, you know, four current projects about Princess Diana, like, what's that about? I think at some level we have to, you know, recognize that this is about a fairy tale that we very much enjoy. And it's a fairy tale about a particular kind of woman, right? It's this princess story that we are still captivated by. And part of the reason we're captivated by it is because it tells a particular story about white femininity that at some level we buy into in this culture. And I mean this culture, you know, the white dominant culture that, you know, dominates the globe. I'm not just talking about America culture. So I think that's part of how we understand and help help to chip away at you know, the, the culture machine that turns out these narratives about white women over and over again and reinforces these notions that white women are somehow more beautiful, more special, more in need of protection, more innocent, better mothers, all that stuff is wrapped up in that. You know, and you're you're absolutely right to point out the historical aspect of this as well. I, I talk about the work of um, historian Stephanie Jones Rogers in the book, and I highly recommend this book, They Were Her Property, which came out just a couple of years ago. And she's done this really profound um, historical work in uncovering the way that white women were also involved in slave ownership. Now, the the way that I was taught in gender and women's studies when I was in graduate school in the 80s and 90s was that white women couldn't own property. All women were prohibited from owning property. That's not actually true. White women of the slave-owning class in the antebellum U.S. were able to own slaves, often inherited from their fathers, and then in ownership with their husbands. Actually, part of what she points out is a way that white women could sort of negotiate and strategize to get more power in a society in which they didn't have a lot if they thought their husbands were not being harsh enough Uh, masters of the people that they owned, white women would come in and sort of put their shoulder into the cruelty. And so, and one one reviewer of her book called it imaginative sadism. And I think that's such a great phrase for this cruel practice. And part of that goes to what you were mentioning about being a wet nurse. Now, this is a term that we don't use much anymore because it's a practice that's fallen out of use, which I think is probably a good thing. Um, But wet nurse is basically the idea of if another woman is also lactating because she's recently given birth, she can actually feed another human child from her breast milk. Right. So there are ways that we could imagine that being a very cooperative relationship. But under racial capitalism and chattel slavery, what happened was that white slave owning mistresses would would make sure to schedule their pregnancy with, their, with the women that they owned, right? So that they wouldn't have to nurse those children that they had, that they could, you know, basically outsource, subcontract the nursing of that child to the enslaved woman that, that they owned. And if you, if you think about that, you know, I use the word schedule, but what, what does that mean to schedule two pregnancies at the same time? That implies a whole chain of abuse and rape, and torture that white women are basically, you know, putting in their day planner when they're, you know, administering slavery. And it, it's just, it's it's stomach turning really to think about it. But, but it continues to this day. And I want people to think that there's a way in which you know, because we don't know the term nurse anymore, that this kind of uh, exploitation and abuse has gone away entirely. I Sometimes when I'm on my way to work at Hunter College, I'll take a bus down Lexington Avenue, and that bus goes right through the richest zip code in the United States. Very wealthy people um, live on that neighborhood called the Upper East Side. And a lot of times what I'll see on that bus is very telling and sort of has this legacy of slavery in it, which is, you know, I'll see white children from those rich families as young as four or five with their caretakers who are often Caribbean American, you know, women or Caribbean immigrants, black women who were taking care of these children. And those children will say things on the bus that I can overhear. Like, if you don't do what I say, I'll have my mommy fire you. And that, you know, that's the voice of the overseer. And these children are learning it right now on the Upper East Side in their day-to-day lives. So that kind of you know, um, economy, if you will, of cruelty continues, even today. And we see it in these school, you mentioned the the Twitter conversation about the school board mom. So there's a mom in for people who haven't been following the story, there's a mother in, I believe it's in Virginia, who was calling for the state to ban the book Beloved by Toni Morrison, the greatest American writer this country has ever turned out. And she wants to ban it because her son, when he was in high school, had nightmares after he read it. Well, if you don't have some kind of <laughs> nightmare or lingering effect of reading a beloved, you haven't done it right. You know, yeah, I mean, That's you're, a, you're doing the cliff notes, right? Exactly. It's a disturbing story, and it it's an important one. So I, I think that there's a way in which this this white woman who is been arguing for banning beloved is doing it in the name of I'm a mother who just wants to protect my children. But I think that protecting children covers over a lot of evil and including banning books. You know, I think that sometimes books upset us and that's a good thing. So, but I think that there's a way in which white motherhood is, is very much central to this conversation that we're, that's going on right now around school boards and the kind of assault that school board School board members and city council people and that sort of thing are are hearing from constituents is very much driven by sort of this, you know, this white nuclear family and white women out front as kind of the protectors of the white nuclear family.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, when you reference the Upper East Side, you know, that's a story that you see in New York and Park Slope and Brooklyn Heights, you know, Tribeca, you know, and, and it's a hard story to watch. So it's an interesting and painful legacy. And I wonder thinking this through and and kind of going, going kind of further into these, into these murky waters, it seems like so much of this sort of racial capitalism and, and white supremacy is anchored in many ways by the presumed innocence of white women. So how does that notion of innocence play into things? Because I, I often see that in white feminist circles that you'll you'll that you speak to. Right. That if there's a woman running the CIA, this is now progress. Right. Rather than the fact that fucking CIA is the worst (laughs) and a woman can torture as this woman was connected to just as well as as a man can. So it's not about, you know, having a woman necessarily. So you know, how do you kind of navigate through that idea of innocence and particularly white women's perceived innocence as obscuring the harm of, of these systems?
1: Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. And I think it's really hard for some women to, for some white women to think about because it's, we've been so inculcated with a particular brand of feminism, what some people call white feminism, what some people call mainstream feminism. But this kind of feminism what i sometimes call gender only feminism teaches us as white women that we are victims right we are victims of gender oppression and while it's true you know the patriarchy patriarchy will not fuck around you know i mean it, it will it will lock you up it will tear you down it will destroy you and i think that's really important to pay attention to but if we if we come at that with a gender only lens then it, it hobbles us in a particular way. It obscures our understanding of the society that we live in. I think for white women, this notion of presumed innocence really does a lot of work for us in the culture. And I, I'm going to tell just two quick stories about this. One at this really sort of very individualistic, and then at sort of this bigger cultural level. So presumed innocence of white, uh, presumed innocence of white women, how does that work in society? Well, long years ago, no one will ever know who this person is, but I had a a friend of a friend in another state who was a white woman who worked, um, when we were all in graduate school, worked at a convenience store. And this was before there were surveillance cameras in every every place that you walk into. And anyway, we we couldn't figure out how this particular mutual acquaintance of ours, ended up going to the Bahamas every week, every summer. Like, we're all broke-ass graduate school. How is she affording that? Come to find out, she had a little um, situation going on at her convenience store job where she'd been skimming the till. And it was just kind of part of her routine. Like, every night, she just... Here's for the store and here's a little for me. Here's for the store and here's a little for me. So through the year, she did the skimming thing and just like say for her little summer vacation, the pump was here and the rest of us were like, are you fucking kidding me? But part of why and she was very conscious about this. Part of why she never got busted by the manager of that store is she's a white woman. She was like, he never suspects me. Okay. So that's one way in which... White women's presumed innocent, just like we're never we're never suspects ever. Couldn't have been a white woman. Right. And then on this bigger level on sort of a broader cultural, social, political level, you know, as you mentioned, we have a woman who is the head of the CIA. You know, and this and and we're supposed to see that as kind of a um, success story for a feminist success story. Wow. She's achieved. She's the head. She's in charge. Right. But what is she in charge of? She's in charge of sending drone strikes to kill black and brown people on the other side of the country. She's in charge of rendition and torture. You know, she's in charge of all the misdeeds of the CIA in the service of American empire, you know, and we're supposed to applaud that. That's not the, the feminism that I signed up for, you know, and then that circulates through popular culture into products like, you know, that um, show with tay Leone, the, uh, Madam Secretary. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It was supposed to be a cipher for both Madeline Albright and H- Hillary Clinton, the white women who were, you know, actual secretaries of state. And we're all supposed to like, oh, isn't she great? She's got this handsome, loving husband, these great kids, and she's trying to juggle being a mom and a wife and do this really important job of killing brown people on the other side of the world. But she has nice pantsuits, you know, so we're not supposed to notice, you know, and there, there's just this way in which... Uh, Another scholar, Alison Phipps, calls this feminism as a war machine, you know, and I just it's just not what I signed up for. It's not what feminism, it's not about smashing the patriarchy, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's about white women helping serve uh, empire and and killing people. And I'm just not I I just think it doesn't have to be that way. And it's not how we work for liberation, you know.
0: But there is a, a lot of power in that. Surrogacy, you know, where you're serving the empire, serving these vested interests, colonial interests, imperialistic interests, racial capitalist interests. But yet, you know, again, we're in that refrain where are we looking to upend these systems or do we want our peace of them? Right. And women deal with this. Black people deal with this. You know, we just saw Colin Powell die. Last week, right? Like, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of debates about people, people like that and and where they fall into the zeitgeist. So my question is, like, how do we move these things past this idea of surrogacy and white women being, in many ways, the face of that? Because like you said, they're everywhere, but nowhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's an interesting question, right? Like how do we how do we shift this? I think I mean I, I just keep going back to I think that that a first step for us is just to be able to name whiteness around white women. You know, I mean I think that for for white women there is a kind of willful ignorance about their own about our own complicity in these systems, right, of death and destruction. And I think that we have to get braver and more courageous about confronting how our own comfort is built into these systems. You know, I mean one of the things I talk about in the book is the is the 911 system, right? Which is is just a tiny part of this much larger, you know, policing infrastructure. And, you know, and and that is part of, you know, the CIA-led effort around the world to police anything seen as a threat to the United States, which, you know, back in the cold war was sort of lumped together as communism and crime. And then communism sort of fell away and it was just crime. And so part of what the CIA was doing was putting police forces around the world and then sort of testing out pilot programs and then, you know, (laughs) When they thought they worked in another country, bringing them back to the U.S. So that's actually what happened with our 911 system. Was actually set up in Venezuela by the CIA first. It was like, oh look, a universal call number. The police come more quickly. Let's have this in the U.S. And so in the 60s, you know, the Kerner Commission and LBJ's sort of response to street uprisings, right? Political protests by by mostly African Americans in the U.S. Was the Kerner Commission. It's like, oh, we've got a, we've got a problem with street protest And 911 system was one of the things that came out of that, one of the recommendations. And it sort of didn't take off because local police jurisdictions didn't want to pay for it. Cities didn't want to say, oh, it's expensive. We can't possibly pay for that. And then the Kitty Genovese murder happened in Kew Gardens, Queens, just in another borough here in the, in New York. And that death of a, this murder of a white woman, supposedly overheard by her neighbors. Turns out that wasn't true. But this murder by of a white woman by a black man ended up galvanizing people like, oh, we've got to have some way to call police, police quick, more quickly. Right. And that turned into the 911 system. So now I think about, you know, when, when these Karen memes happen, when these white women are calling 911 on black and brown people, just going about their daily business. I think, you know, this is actually, they're tapping into white women are actually tapping into a system that was built for them. You know, it was a whole infrastructure that's put in place for our comfort, and so you know, like one thought experiment is, what would happen if nine one one went away, right? What, like my fellow white women, how would you feel if you could no longer call white? You could no longer call nine one one. Would that disturb your sense of comfort and ease in society? If so, let's rethink that, right? Why? Why are you relying on the police to feel safe in your own neighborhood? Have you talked to your neighbors? Do you know the people around you like that? I mean, that's part of what we have to do to start moving past this kind of, you know, terrible bargain that we've struck as white women, which is I'll take this sort of marginal next door to power a place in society i'll i'll align myself with more powerful white men so that i can get some of these crumbs so that i can get some of these side benefits so that i can feel more comfortable in my day to day but i think that we have to pull back and look at where our investments are in this system that's destroying other people where are our investments in whiteness where are our investments in you know our own comfort at the expense of other people
0: and you know this has long been kind of Faustian bargain in a sense. And and you mentioned they were her property in, in an earlier response and, and Stephanie Joan um, Rogers' book. And I had that in my notes because I wanted to tie it to another book that I've referenced for a long time, um, Out of the House of Bondage by Tavolia Glymph. And that was really my first kind of understanding of, again, how involved and implicated the systems of power were in a plantation system a story that's that's not often told because if you rely on popular culture you know you watch roots or something like that you kind of see the mistress of the house with the big petticoat and the waving of the of the fan and you know oh lord mercy i could use a iced tea you know and they're very like you know <laughs> aloof and and oftentimes they're portrayed as the victim of the husband, right, and you see that punctured you know through these books, and there's more complicity there, so I'm kind of leaning that in to talk about again the Faustian bargain of of comfort, and you know that is limiting to everyone's liberation because it makes it much harder. To build true solidarity, you know, and you speak to that through the analysis of feminist movements in the 70s and the Pink Pussy March of of more recent, the Women's March of more recent times, cutting through all that, like, that bargain prevents the solidarity. How do we make the solidarity more of a focus rather than the comforts that come from dealing with the 55% that voted for Trump?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a great question. And I think that you know there's a, in a lot of ways, we're thinking about the antebellum, like white women today are, are still in this kind of Scarlett O'Hara place, you know, where we're like, We're both victims and heroines is sort of how we imagine ourselves, you know, and I I just want us to, as white women, begin to recognize the structural position that we're in. The place that we're in is this terrible box that we've been put in, both by patriarchy and racial capitalism, and that to, to get out of it, we have to rethink, basically, we have to rethink our alliance with white men and whiteness. That's where white most white women are placing their alliance is with whiteness through aligning with white men and creating all white families that they can then hoard resources within those families and pass them down to their white children that they've created in these all-white families. You know, I I mean, just to bring it back to the contemporary <laughs> from Scarlet O'Hara, I mean the contemporary version of that, you know, is Patty McCluskey. Your listeners may not remember who that is, but there was a during the summer of 2020, there was a Black Lives Matter peaceful protest where people are walking by quietly with signs past a, a large um, house referred to as a palazzo in St. Louis. And the two people who live there, Patty McCluskey and her husband, come out with guns, guns. He's carrying, a, I think, an AR-47 a machine. A, automatic weapon. She's got a little silver pistol, but they both have the safeties off and they're out on the porch of their palazzo. She's got in her black capri pants and no shoes standing there with her little pistol. And I just think it's such a metaphor for how white women, you know, exist in the society where we're on the porch of our palazzo with a little silver pistol, you know, because our alliance is to the property, it's to the man. It's not to the people who are walking past who are advocating for liberation. You know, we've got to shift that alliance so that it's not to to property that we can pass on to our children. It's not to the men who are out earning us. You know, it's to the people who are working for liberation, who are walking by our house.
0: You know? That that picture is like locked into my, in brain. my brain. <laughs> <laughs> in because it has... It has all the elements that we would recognize as, you know, if there's like a, a a group of black people standing around and we see something crazy, we just shake our head and we're just like white people. And it just, it just says everything that, so that you need to say. So, so I could, I could see those capri pants and the,
1: and why you she got on no shoes, right? Yeah. I mean, the
0: barefoot what? piece <laughs> is the kicker.
1: You couldn't on some shoes?
0: Anyway. Nah, you definitely can't have the shoes on. <laughs> that would break the entire the entire thing, you know. But, but it
1: suggests, right, that she was in a hurry to me. You know, it's like, oh my God, we're in danger. And it's like, what are you in danger about? People <laughs> quietly walking by your house, like what? Yeah,
0: but those those things can be perceived as dangerous to people who are very heavily invested in the mythology of white supremacy. Yeah, right. Because anything that is not all white then becomes a a threat. Unless the blackness is in a place that you're comfortable with, you know,
1: in some entertaining uh, capsule, perhaps.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. That you likely control.
1: And (laughs) profit from.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the trifecta. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so I want to talk to a couple more things, which is, and I mentioned this at the beginning, like some of these things are very serious and very, like in your face, like those with guns and yeah and all the rest. But others are more insidious, right? Yeah. yeah. And the wellness industry is one of those things that you yeah that you speak to and the idea of theft as well. So I I wanna take the wellness industry and how this again sort of perpetuates these ideas and, and centers them a bit.
1: Yeah, the wellness industry is really interesting to me. And I, I got fascinated because it sort of came into my home. My uh, former partner got very taken in by the whole wellness industry. But part of what, you know, beyond that sort of mundane personal story, part of what captivated me about this was how much money was going to the wellness industry. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And while there's certainly, you know, some of that marketing that targets black women and BIPOC folks in general, it really is a kind of white woman dominated space, you know, and sometimes, you know, there'll be women's magazines that do do things like, well, wellness has a race problem. It doesn't really have a race problem, it has a whiteness problem. And part of that, you know, is about the people who've come to dominate the wellness industry, like Gwyneth Paltrow and her outfit um, called Goop, um, which sells a lot of this stuff. And, you know, in the Part of what I think is so insidious about it is it it reinforces a kind of nice white ladyhood that is special and in need of care, you know, and it reinforces that idea that somehow our struggle is special and that, and that we need a lot of tending to be able to go on as white women. So I was really just fascinated with how that um, set of ideas has become this industry, you know. And the theft part of it is kind of really blatant in some ways. You know, there's an interview I talk about with Gwyneth Paltrow and one of the late night guys. I can't remember which one, but he's asking her about this idea of earthing. And she's like, oh, I really and earthing basically is walking around outdoors barefoot, you know, which is, you know, what we used to do when I was a kid. Um But now it's called Earthing. And she says, oh, I actually don't know much about it. I'm paraphrasing the quote. I don't know much about it, but it was an indigenous practice. And somebody just, you know, basically lifted it. And we thought it would be a good idea to promote through Goop. And it, it was just so amazing to me that she would, on this late night talk show with millions of viewers, say, one, I don't really know much about this stuff that we're hawking on Goop. And two, yeah, it's pretty much entirely lifted from an indigenous culture. And oops, oh, well, that's just what we do. You know, and she kind of sees that as a service. Like, I'm I'm sharing this with you because you wouldn't have known about it otherwise. You know, and it's like, yeah, but that's actually theft. <laughs> You're actually just stealing from this culture and then selling it and making a profit. So I think there are all sorts of ways that we have to interrogate wellness. Like, what are we doing when we say that we're doing self-care? And there's also this kind of banner that gets held aloft over self-care, which is, you know, the Audrey Lorde quote that taking care of myself is really an act of political rebellion and i just don't think or political warfare i just don't think that getting a mani penny is what audrey lord had in mind <laughs> you know so the the kind of i call it the shallow promise of the wellness industry you know it's really it's basically retail therapy it's like we live in racial capitalism sometimes it just feels good to buy something because you just like for a minute you feel better but but that's what it is you know let let let's call it what it actually is which is retail therapy
0: yeah there's a lot of of that circulating that that we all kind of do you know so i'm keeping an eye on the time because i want to make sure that we that we get you out of here on time and we left so much on the table cuz i didn't even get into like evangelicals and like there's so much that again it all swims together and thinking that that through a little bit you know it does cut through some of these silos that people would say exist, right? So one wouldn't think that the Upper East Side mom has a lot in common with the stereotypical evangelical, wherever that person might exist, because evangelicals are Mm -hmm. everywhere, right? But yet through this nexus of white womanhood and nice white ladies, there find some common ground, right? So projecting forward as we tend to be more divisive. We're having more fights. You know, some of the fights, these fights around school boards are not just in the South, right? They're in Manhattan, <laughs> you know, they're in, Absolutely. they're in, they're in Brooklyn. I never asked guests whether they're optimistic or not. Cause I, you know, I don't like optimism as a false notion, but do you have a prediction on how we net out as we kind of go through more of these types of of years and and then we'll get to the final two segments of the show.
1: Yeah, I think it's good to frame this for me. It's good to frame it in terms of, you know, the spiritual tradition that I come from which believes in transformation. So I, you know, I I agree with Mariam Kaba who says, you know, hope is a is a is a discipline, it's a practice. And so, you know, the spiritual tradition I come from advocates hope and I am hopeful that white women will Pay attention to what's going on in the culture right now and figure out how to transform ourselves and the rest of our approach to life so that, you know, the world is better for all of us. But there is a lot of grim data out there that contradicts that, you know, hopeful practice and discipline. But I I keep holding out hope that there's going to be transformation. Because I think it's going to be really ugly if people don't um, get with this transformation.
0: Transformation and hope are two things I could definitely get get my head around. So I want to get to off the dome, which are just a few very quick questions. First thing off the off the top of your head. So this is all just in fun. So my first one is for those who are Eddie Murphy fans and might remember Raw, his second stand up, there's a there's a piece where he says that, you know, Brooke Shields is the whitest woman in America. And, you know, this is like in the mid eighties. <laughs> So in your mind, if we're thinking about casting the whitest woman in America, who do you think that would be?
1: Oh, I think right now, you know, it's got to go to my girl, uh, Reese Witherspoon, (laughs) (laughs) who, I mean, you know, through her different roles, I think has just been the kind of epitome of white womanhood in some ways. And I I don't mean this as any shade at all. I actually, I'm actually desperate for Reese to get this book. So if you're listening, Reese, I'll send it to you myself. Yeah, Um, Reese Witherspoon's
0: awesomely funny.
1: (laughs) I think she's great, and I think she could also do some great stuff. I mean, she's got this book club going, and she's really—I think she's really trying. So, I—I—I I, I pick Reese she's Yeah, that's a
0: good—that's a good pick. And her—her her daughter is like a twin of her, so maybe get the oh, book. Yeah, I
1: saw that. Yeah. get the
0: book in—in in
1: yeah, her exactly. hands as Did well. Your daughter, maybe. <laughs> you <worked> know,
0: <laughs> my second one is, and I asked this one before to another guest, and. It's gotten a good response. so I wanted to go to you to kind of get a, see if it goes in a different direction. If you can add someone's image to Mount Rushmore, which we shouldn't do because it's on indigenous land and Mount Rushmore shouldn't exist, but it does. And if you can add someone, who would you add?
1: I'd have to go with Ida B. Wells, Barnett. That'd be my first choice. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer. Are we going to replace all four? (laughs) Yeah. Add Fanny Lou. Add Angela Davis. Uh, one more. Kimberly Crenshaw.
0: That's a good list. I like that. That's a murderer's row. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, you know, we really shouldn't do that to that mountain. But,
0: <laughs> but you know, if, if we're going to replace. Yeah. Those are those are great replacements right there. <laughs> um, my last one is what is the must have item for the anti nice white ladies club? Those of us who are looking to build something different, what do we need?
1: Item? You mean after my book?
0: (laughs) After the book, the book is now inspired. The next thing.
1: Um. What's the must-have item? (sighs)
0: So no Lululemon, no pink pussy hats. Like, what do the what do the rest of us need to get?
1: (laughs) You know, how do you block? 911 calls. Whatever that whatever that thing is that blocks 911 outgoing calls on white lady phones. That be like, Okay, <laughs> that be an app for that. Right? Okay,
0: we'll build that. Okay, app developers, we're going to be in, in contact with you. <laughs> so, now I want to get to the drop and the drop is just anything for our listeners to spend time with and While you're getting set for your drop, my drop very simply is a show called What We Do in the Shadows, which is ending its third season, I think, tomorrow as of when we're recording this. And the idea of the show is kind of silly. It's going to sound silly to anybody who might read about it. It's about vampires living in Staten Island. But Mm -hmm. it is absolutely hilarious. Okay. It's a, it's a great show. It's on FX, but FX through Hulu is the best way to kind of okay. get at it. And it's called What We Do in the Shadows. Incredibly funny show. It ain't nothing serious, but it will okay. definitely make you laugh.
1: All right. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out. Can I, can I do two?
0: Yes, yeah, you can do two. two my, ones allowed.
1: My, my recent um, recommendation is We're Here, which I believe is on HBO. And it's, it's drag queens, multiracial group of drag queens going around the country to like small towns, sort of like drag queens visit America for queer liberation. It's delightful. Anyway, I highly recommend that one. And then my other one is this poem by Nicole Seeley. It's called Legendary, and I really wanted to use it for as an epigraph for the book, but it got I couldn't get the rights soon enough before publication. It's really short. But if you'll allow me, I'm going to read it legendary. I want to be married in church, in white, nothing borrowed or blue. I want a white house in Peekskill, far from the city, white picket fence, fencing in my lily white lilies. Oh, were I whiter than white? A couple of kids, one girl, one boy, both white, birthright, all the amenities of white, golf courses, guest houses, garage with white washer dryer set whatever else white affords I want in multiples of white two of something if they're white never mind another neutral off-white won't do what I'd like to be is to be white as the unsparing light at tunnels end by Nicole Celio send you the link for your show notes
0: absolutely thank you for that I'm, I'm gonna have to give people like a drinking game for this episode like every time you hear the word white you gotta take a shot (laughs) Every listener will be drunk by the time we get through like 15, 20 minutes. That's right. Jesse. this has been great. Like I said, I I love your work. I love everything you're doing. You make me smarter and and better in in so many ways. And I, I can't thank you enough for being on the deep dive with me.
1: Thank you so much for the work you do. And thanks for having me on.
0: You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.